Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for the first Lifeboat episode of our Bracket on a Boat. We are adrift in the seas of um, podcasting. Something, whales? Pods of whales? I don't know. I tried. It's it's fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, what my co-host is trying to say <laughs> is that we'll be talking about the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou from 2004, as well as the Boat That Rocked from 2009. Without Steve Zizou. <laughs> no, although... <laughs> I think Steve Zizou would definitely fit on if fit in at the boat that rocked. Yes, although I feel like he, he's the someone who would fund the boat that rocked, <laughs> and then they would kind of put up with him for that reason. Yes, that, that feels accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so both of these are films that mostly take place on boats mm-hmm. um, that just didn't quite fit onto the bracket. The boat that rocked, I wanted to get onto the bracket, but there were other things uh, seated higher, mm-hmm. and... So I'm just like, okay, I'll just make sure it's in a episode after the bracket, because I love this film. Mm-hmm. As you should. Yeah. Uh, and then we did get a few comments and requests for us to talk about The Life Aquatic. So we went ahead and paired it up with this, and it's turned out to be surprisingly parallel. It kind of feels like these are both adaptions of the same like short story by very different directors with very different approaches. Yes. They are both about... A young man arriving on a boat that is facing some sort of uncaring force, and the boy like gets to know his father during the course of that, and then also bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And also just meandering plot happens. Yes. That's an interesting thing about both of these films. It's not really all of the events that lead up to this sort of conclusion. It's much more... Both of them are much more emotional journeys. Yeah. Broadly episodic in a way that you could easily slot in more things happening without sort of damaging the arc of the plot. Yeah. In fact, The Boat That Rocked, when it released, was released in the U.S., 20 minutes were cut from its runtime because critics said it was a little bit meandering and too long, and it was retitled Pirate Radio. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely see that. I could easily imagine how you could cut about 20 minutes of this and be fine, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. First off, let's go ahead and start with The Life Aquatic. With Zizu. Yes, with Steve Zizou. What's that about? So, renowned oceanographer Steve Zizou has sworn vengeance upon a rare shark that devoured a member of his crew, Esteban. In addition to his regular team, he is joined on his boat by Ned, a man who believes Zizou to be his father, and Jane, a journalist pregnant by a married man, who also happens to be her publisher. And is not married to her. Yes. They travel the sea, constantly running into obstacles from lack of funding, interpersonal drama between the crew, the tracking equipment breaking down and stealing new ones from Zizu's rival, uh, and eventually running into pirates. Through the experience, Zizu begins to look at himself with a more critical eye, especially after the death of Ned. The crew does eventually find the rare jaguar shark, but its beauty overwhelms them and Steve refuses to kill it. Yeah, that is pretty much the plot. Yeah. This is our first time directly talking about a Wes Anderson film on the podcast. Yeah, and I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm not a Wes Anderson person. His thing doesn't really work for me. So I'm going to try not to spend a lot of time talking smack about the style because while it's not my thing, that doesn't mean that it's inherently bad. Yeah, I do think, like, as someone who leans in a positive direction towards Wes Anderson, I do think that this is one of his weaker works. I think when it came out, other critics would have definitely agreed in that regard. It has been looked upon a little bit more favorably in the time since, but... With Wes Anderson, there's always these big ensemble casts, and I don't think this one does a good job of making use of everyone. Mm -hmm. It's very much focused on Steve and Ned 
and Jane. Honestly, sometimes the other characters get in the way. And they're not used sparingly enough that they are functionally a Greek chorus, nor are they um, given enough weight to have their own growth as people. Even Hans, who is our willing to fellow for the evening, is there. He kind of keeps hitting the same notes, and things happen with him, but I'm not compelled by them. Yeah. He kind of has a chip on his shoulder when Ned shows up, because he's always saw Steve as a father figure to him, and Ned is kind of pushing him out of the spotlight. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the Steve Zissel show, not the Ned show. You hear me? Klaus! No. If you ever touch me again, I will kick your goddamn teeth out. Is that understood? Not if I don't see you first, Sonny. So there's a few, like, confrontations between Ned and Hans, but things never really progress beyond that. There's just kind of arguments and sniping at each other. Then there's an emotional moment where Hans comes clean about what's been going on and why he's feeling the way he is, and then things get resolved. What's the deal? I'm sick of being on B-Squad. Listen, you may be on B-Squad, but you're the B-Squad leader. Don't you know me and Esteban always thought of you as our baby brother? I've always thought of you two as my dad's. I think in a different movie, there might be a thing where, like, Hans saves Ned at the last minute or, like, delivers a eulogy or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, technically, Hans is indirectly responsible for Ned's death, so there's that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the Wes Anderson style. Like, he doesn't always force the plot to resolve in a traditionally compelling way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's the way his plots tend to resolve is not clean. It's not very easy, simple path. It's kind of meandering and complicated and his endings are usually mixed bags and in that way it is it is a reasonably realistic take i mean life also doesn't have like those perfect conclusions all the time yeah but there's definitely that like characteristic wes anderson whimsy throughout the color grade and the costuming kind of evoke this 60s sort of feel part of this film is definitely a loving homage slash parody to jacques cousteau uh, Steve Zizou is very obviously modeled after him, especially with the red caps. And F- fun fact about Jacques Cousteau, for a very long time, my head just merged Jacques uh, Cousteau and uh, Clouseau from The Pink Panther into one person. God damn it. I had a lot of very confusing conversations. <laughs> and the style is very specific. Like you, you can very much tell what they were going for with that. And I mm-hmm. kind of wish they'd like, lean into it a little bit more. Like, by the Grand Budapest, Wes Anderson's gotten even more stylized. This is still trying to tread a little bit more naturalistic, and I think it works its best when it's not. Like, there's a really fun bit where characters are having an argument all throughout the ship, and you can, it is more like the camera is on the outside of sets that are built for the stage than that is trying to, like, follow through doors and keep a se- seeming realism. And I think that works really well. I like that. Yeah, there's kind of this cross-section of the boat that they're on, and that whole thing is, like, a set. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. I yeah. could have built that. I like that a lot. And this is fairly early on in Wes Anderson's career. The only big film that he had done prior to this was Royal Tannenbaums in 2001, mm-hmm. which I think this and Royal Tannenbaums are both very similar. I think this one is a little bit more dynamic, whereas Royal Tannenbaums is like all about the interpersonal drama. I do think it Royal Tannenbaums manages its ensemble better, but... We don't get scenes in Royal Tannenbaum's that are effectively Wes Anderson's The Raid. <laughs> yeah. What a wild, wild thing that was. So let's talk a little bit about our cast. So for Steve Zizou, we have Bill Murray, mm-hmm. which honestly I think is a perfect casting choice for this 
character who is Captain Ahab by way of Jacques Cousteau, played by Bojack Horseman. Yeah. Fairly early on, I, I turned to him and said, Is this another Moby Dick adaption? Is Milbury Captain Ahab? <laughs> this keeps happening. I mean, he wants revenge against a giant fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think this has a happier ending than Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. Milbury survives. <laughs> But he does grow as a person. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, at one point I mentioned that like I wasn't huge fan of Bill Murray. He's like, and he said, I don't think he'll get better. So he said, eh, maybe he'll get eaten. <laughs> Again, I think Bill Murray's doing a very good job with this character. It's just that it's a character I don't like. Yes, like this is specifically an archetype that you really dislike, mm-hmm. which is valid and fair. Other major players that we have, we have Owen Wilson as Ned. Mm-hmm. I did not realize it was Owen Wilson. I didn't know Owen Wilson could act. <laughs> he does also have a slight mustache here. Mm-hmm, which changes everything. But yeah, he's decent here. Um, he and Wes Anderson work together quite often. Wes Anderson tends to have a very small pool of people who like get his work that he works with very often. And you see them crop up in a lot of his films. Yeah. But yeah, Owen Wilson is pretty good here. It's definitely much more dry humor than... Most of the films that I've seen him in before. But again, it's, it's Wes Anderson, so that's kind of what works. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Kate Blanchett as Jane, who it's Kate Blanchett, so she's amazing as yeah, always. For sure. <laughs> like one of the best characters. Mm-hmm. She seems like a real person where a lot of the people on the boat don't, and I like that about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, since she's kind of the outsider in this. Yeah. Yeah, she plays a journalist who is doing a story on Zizu, and there's a, quite a bit of antagonism toward her because she's not just doing a puff piece. She's actually, like, writing interesting journalism. Mm -hmm. And at first, Steve is very frustrated by that because he's mostly looking for this puff piece to help him get funding. Mm -hmm. Well, don't you think the public perception of your work has significantly altered in the last five years? That's your first question? I thought this was supposed to be a puff piece. Uh, But by the end of the film, he reads through his article and he's able to accept the negative parts about himself. Mm-hmm. By the way, thanks for showing me the first draft. You read it. What did you think? Well, I was a little embarrassed at first. Obviously, people are going to think I'm a showboat and a little bit of a prick. But then I realized that's me. I said those things. I did those things. I can live with that. You're a good writer, Jane. That, that is probably one of the biggest discreet moments of character growth. Yeah. That scene works really well. Mm-hmm. It's a good contrast to his initial interaction with her where he's framed against this orca that he keeps on his island that is swimming around in the glass behind him. Mm-hmm. Which, that's a very good, like, hashtag compensating for something moment. Mm-hmm. More minor characters. We have Angelica Houston as Eleanor Zizou, Steve's estranged wife. We have Jeff Goldblum here as Alistair Hennessy, who is a, another marine biologist and rival of uh, Zizou. Probably more popular and also more competent, question mark? Yes. Also has a lot more funding. Yes. That, that kind of feeds into itself. Yeah. Or also uses his funding in a more sensible way. Yeah. As opposed to, like, trading dolphins to follow your ship with cameras on their heads. Or having a full sauna with living Swedish masseuse <laughs> on your boat. He does have a cappuccino machine, but... Sure. Uh, we also have Matthew Gray Goobler as uh, one of the interns. <laughs> he gets like two lines. He's one of the more prominent of the interns. He's the only one who sticks around after the rest of them leave after pirates attack. Yeah, it's 
It's weird seeing him here. Kumar Wands was a thing at this point, right? Like, um, let me double check on the timeline for that. I believe sure. so. Criminal Minds started the year after this came out, 2005. So my hypothesis that Matthew Greg Lubler is a Wes Anderson character who escaped into the real world. <laughs> he does have a little bit of that about him, although, counter-argument, are you familiar with his character in 500 Days of Summer? Because... <laughs> I, I, I don't know rom-com stuff. It's fair. His character in that film feels very different from a lot of his other stuff. Mm. And while we're talking about the interns, I don't know if we're going to be able to fit this in anywhere else, but it's a very good bit where we're talking about how everyone on the boat has to have a Glock, no questions asked, and someone says, Oh, no, no, no. No exceptions. Everyone gets one. Anne-Marie, do the interns get Glocks? No, they all share one. It's a good good bit. Yeah. Wes Anderson is known for, like, very dry bits of one-off humor, Mm -hmm. and it yeah, there, there's some really fantastic lines in this film. Eaton, is he dead? One thing that I've got to point out, and it's not surprising because the film is from 2004, and Zizu's distinctly supposed to be an asshole, but he uses a lot of homophobic slurs. Mm-hmm. Specifically, he re- keeps referring to Kate Blanchett as a... This bulldog's got something against us. Which is weird because... That refers to a very specific lesbian archetype, and she's not that. Like, she's more of a lipstick lesbian than anything else if she was a lesbian, which Mm -hmm. she's not. Yeah, I mean, she's, like, outdoorsy and capable, but... Right. Not really that butch. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. There's also a F-slur that gets tossed out specifically by Zizu towards, yeah, Alistair Hennessy. Who at one point does define himself as being part gay... Which is the kind of thing that if a queer person were writing and or saying it, I'd be fine with. But this isn't that thing to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also another line from Zizu calling Jane. Um, that pregnant slut's been playing us like a cheap fiddle. It's not great. It's really not great. And I get that this character is su- supposed to be shitty as part of who he is as a person, but... That kind of thing is, um, hits differently and it needs to be called out differently than, like, being an absent father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is one moment that I do recall where Ned pushes back a little bit mm-hmm. against that, but Ned's in a difficult position because he's trying to get the man who he believes to be his father to like him. Yeah. And and even then, it's not like, that thing you said wasn't cool, it's just, oh no, I don't think she's a lesbian. Like, what you said is fine, it's just inaccurate. Yeah. Which, admittedly, there's a very good bit in, I want to say, Orange of the New Black, where a character says, it's hate speech, it's not supposed to be accurate, it's supposed to be hateful. Another thing that I would like to talk about is the use of stop motion to convey like the majesty of the sea in this film. Because I, I think it works incredibly well in that regard. It's not always easy to convey to an audience just how very different the ecosystem of the ocean is. And how movingly beautiful it can be, because there's a lot of people who feel that way. And I think Wes Anderson does a really good job of getting the audience to feel the same way by having much of the sea life in his film not shot photorealistically, but with this like stop-motion animation style. Often very colorful and glossy in ways that are, I think, sort of intentionally not real-looking. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like fantastical elements to these Sea creatures, too. Like, there's a rhinestone tuna that he uses to bait the jaguar shark at the end. Mm -hmm. The jaguar shark is bright yellow with 
the spots that you would expect from it. And also, you know, bigger than a shark should be. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, like, beyond a whale shark, there's not really, that's not really a thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's also um, the electric jellyfish towards the beginning of the film that wash up on beach, and they kind of just, they're like fireflies, but beached jellyfish. Mm-hmm. It creates this kind of weird, eerie moments for the characters to be out on the beach with, which I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Another aesthetic thing that I really appreciate is when they get boarded by pirates, most of the action is happening like within the bowels of the ship, so they're in, in these interiors. Um, and after they're captured, they bring Steve and a few other people up to the deck, and the color grade has changed dramatically. Before, there was kind of this yellow overtone. It made everything feel warm and summery. And then everything has this like blue cast to it. Makes everything feel colder and closer to like a spy thriller. Mm-hmm. They're figuring out how to deal with the pirates. And then eventually Steve just like takes out his Glock and starts shooting at them <laughs> to get them to um, flee. And the color grade changes back. Yeah. It's definitely going for this kind of, you used to be so cool, but now you are not. And then getting back to that cool thing, mm-hmm. which I think broadly works that idea could have been worked in a little bit more strongly through the film yeah because it's the only place where i specifically noticed the color grade change Mm -hmm. it might be another place that we don't pick up on as much and Mm -hmm. that's just the most dramatic version of it but yeah there's also just in general way more gunfights than you would expect from wes anderson film yeah like this is probably one of his more action heavy films and it's Really interesting to see how Wes Anderson as a director deals with that. Some of the gunfights are really well choreographed. Mm-hmm. There's also the crash sequence of the helicopter that is really interesting. It's a lot of like quick flashes and jump cuts, and it's all silent. Mm-hmm. It's very different from the rest of the film, and that's very intentional. The visual realism of a plane crash would not fit with the film's style, so going for this very inner journey-esque thing or or seeing kind of what might be flashing through Steve Zizou's mind during this was a way better choice. Yeah. I have a minor complaint. Um, there's a woman who is on the uh, ship and there's doesn't really get any lines. There's a few shots where it's kind of like, without this scene, who would know who one has breasts? And I'm like, eh, come on. Oh yeah, the, uh, the script coordinator. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she attempts to start a mutiny about Halfway to three quarters through the film. Oh, was that her? Okay. Yeah. You couldn't recognize her because she was wearing a shirt. I guess, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that's the same woman. Okay. I'll take back her not having lines, but still. Yeah. Um, But she does eventually leave along with most of the interns because they're sick of Steve Zizou's shit. Mm -hmm. As as they should be. Yeah. Uh, I think this is like right after they escape from the pirates. Mm -hmm. One interesting bookend that I want to point out that I think is another interesting way to show Zizou's change throughout the film is the beginning of the film he previews like part one of his film about the jaguar shark and at the end Hans's son gifts him with a seahorse like in a plastic bag like you would carry a goldfish in a crayon pony fish wow interesting specimen and eventually something happens the bag springs a leak and he has to pour some water in the seahorse into like a champagne flute and carry it through a crowd and he lifts the champagne flute above his head to you know make sure it's safe at the end of the film after the premiere of the second half of the film hans's son comes out to like sit with him he he looks up to him because he 
he's a cool marine biologist as far as he knows. And this is kind of one of those worlds where the protagonist's unusual job is the center of the universe. So mm-hmm. um, it, it is cooler than perhaps we might take it as in our world. Yeah. Uh, as the crowd's like coming out of the theater after watching his film, he takes Hans's son and puts him on his shoulders and carries him through the crowd in a very similar way that he carried the seahorse. Mm -hmm. And it shows how Steve's priorities have shifted from wanting to protect this majestic sea life to realizing that the people around him are worthy of just as much care and attention and protection. Yeah. I had not picked up on that. That is really cool. Good job with the arc. With these, Shitty Man becomes a slightly better person. It's really important to... A, explicitly call out what exactly their shitty behavior is, as opposed to just, like, show a bunch of it and then be like, well, everything. It just doesn't um, land the same way. Mm-hmm. I think it's also really important to show exactly the ways that they've changed. And that's not always an easy thing to do. And I I don't think that Life Aquatic succeeds 100%, but I do see a lot of interesting ways in which it was trying to. Yeah, it definitely does a better job than some that I've seen. It's not just he does one nice thing at the end and then we stop. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm ready to move over to our other film. Yes. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about The Boat That Rocked? Okay. So it is 1966 and all over the UK, people are tuning into pirate radio stations for the rock and roll that official channels just aren't playing. We meet a boat, Radio Rock, full of DJs, each more colorful and crass than the last, through the eyes of Carl, a young man whose mother thinks the boat will straighten him out. It does not. A series of, of misadventures helps Carl and the rest of Radio Rock's crew grow as personalities and as people, even as government official Kenneth Branagh and just Commodore Norrington conspire to make pirate radio stations illegal. They succeed, and Radio Rock uh, weighs anchored to continue broadcasting only for the aging boat's engine to explode. The crew send out a, a distress signal that Mr. Branagh refuses to answer. Instead, they are rescued at the 11th hour by a fleet of boats that their fans have cobbled together to come to rescue them. It is extremely punk rock. And I love this, but also it was a direct targeted hit to me as a person who is just kind of into punk aesthetics and, I mean, also piracy. Mm-hmm. And also British humor. And also Bill Nighy. And also Nick Frost. Both of these films... And also Tallulah Riley. <laughs> Both these and fil- also Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Are you quite fucking done? <laughs> I know you're no. not, because there's a bunch of people in this film, which is what I'm trying to get at. Both of these films have lots of star power in their cast, but in very different ways. Like, The Boat That Rocked has almost a who's who of British comedy at the time. Mm-hmm. It's written by the guy who did Mr. Bean and The Vicar of Dibley, mm-hmm. Four Wings and a Funeral. Yeah. And the only American we have in the cast is Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is doing a fantastic job as the Count. Oh yeah, absolutely great. Uh, my aim is not to offend, it is to entertain, but also perhaps to educate a little. Because if you shoot a bullet, someone dies. When you drop a bomb, many die. If you hit a woman, love dies. But if you say the F word, nothing actually happens. Here to break the news that Philip Seymour Hoffman is a good actor. <laughs> it's so very unfortunate that he is no longer with us because I would have loved to see his output in his later years. That would have been great. Mm-hmm. Bill Nye, he is the owner-operator of Radio Rock. We have Nick Frost as one of the DJs, Dr. Dave. We have 
Reese Darby, who some of you might recognize from his short role as a werewolf in What We Do in the Shadows, or as the voice of Cran from Netflix's Voltron. He is here as Nutsford. Chris O'Dowd, who many of you will probably recognize from like things like the IT crowd here, is here as Simple Simon. There's just so many people, and they are all doing such a fantastic job with the material. It's very clear that they're all having a good time doing this. Mm-hmm. I get the impression that this is one of those shoots that was just like, a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. Even Kenneth Branagh and Jack Davenport are having a blast playing these over-the-top villains. <laughs> Jack Davenport returns as a mid-ranked government official who is trying to hunt down pirates, but instead of like hunting down Jack Sparrow, he's hunting down Bill Nighy with, uh, with a radio station. Yeah. Also, his last name is Twat. Mm-hmm. So he's playing another Twat in this film. <laughs> There's also uh, a very sweet uh, character called Thick Kevin, who I love dearly. Protect him at all costs. He is thick as in um, not terribly bright. Calling him not terribly bright is sort of an insult to not terribly bright people, but yes. <laughs> I just finished off. Kev. Rabbits are Easter, not Christmas. That's why they call it the Easter Bunny. <laughs> All right. I am seriously thick, aren't I? You are it definitely takes a deft hand to pull off that character who is oblivious to the point of absurdity and make it feel reasonable and still be funny. And Thick Kevin is like just that sweet spot. I think it's because he has such utterly unearned confidence in everything he says and does. (laughs) Literally the smartest thing he ever says on the boat is while he is uproariously drunk after a bachelor party pub crawl. He becomes like incredibly intuitive about the machinations of people he's never met Mm -hmm. for about 40 seconds. And it's amazing. And then he immediately falls off the top bunk of the bed. (laughs) What do you say to that? It's great. It's really great. Another thing that I really like about this film is how well it uses its setting and time period. It very much feels like the 60s. All of the costuming and hair and makeup is fantastic. I think one of the biggest ways that shows is the sex-positive nature that everyone has, Mm -hmm. which has its pros and cons. There is some stuff that gets into kind of like squeaky and shitty territory, but never anything that is so bad that I had to turn it off. Yeah. And many of the points where that happens, it's often the shitty people in that situation are hoisted on their own petard. Yes, which I think is the best way to handle that. Mm -hmm. Like, you still get the fun body sex comedy aspects, but you don't show that as being inherently admirable. Yes. I do also appreciate that there's gender parity in that. We Mm -hmm. have men who are doing shitty sex stuff, but we also have women who are doing the same thing. And we also have women who are being totally fine and calling people out on stuff, and men who are also being totally fine and calling people out on stuff. Yes. And also there's a woman who, uh, our protagonist-ish, has a love interest, Marianne, who picks up on some of his shenanigans and calls him out immediately. I'm like, yes, good, thank you. But it's still like, and also... I have a sexuality that I want to pursue. Yes. I can have both of these things. Mm -hmm. Did you say, I can see why you wanted the condom? (laughs) I didn't know I would say that. I did. 
And the only conclusion I can draw from that is that you thought I was going to be so easy that you borrowed a condom. Speaking of sex, it is pretty rare to see a fat man as a recurring object of sexual desire, and I like that Nick Frost gets to be a sex object in this. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, and to a certain extent, so does uh, uh, the Count. Not quite to the extent that Nick Frost does, because he, there's never a point where he's like in the full Monty and covering his bits in the bathroom. <laughs> I really thought that scene was going to end with his date walking in on him and the 17-year-old boy being naked in the same bathroom. <laughs> It's fine. Uh, this movie's fine. Yeah. <laughs> we also have some, a little bit of uh, queer representation. Yeah. The only one who is consistently aboard the ship is Felicity, who is their cook. And the only reason that she's allowed to be there is she's a lesbian. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no one is sleeping with her. <laughs> there are some word choices to describe her that I was a little bit eh, on, but nothing that was yeah. like the worst. Yeah. And also, I like that she gets to have a love interest. She- they play in the fact that this movie is not going to like get a lot of lesbian kissing on the screen and be okay and be released and all that jazz into her character who is clearly kind of sad about not getting to have as much sex with the people around her. Mm. But she gets to have love interest by the end of the movie and that works out. So they did mm. a really good job of like bringing in the problem that they're going to deal with into the narrative. Yes. They're also a very good bit where some fans are introduced to her. It's like, this is our cook, Felicity. <laughs> She's a lesbian. Yes. Yeah. It's it's very good. I love that. I, I believe you said after that scene, hey, look, it's Twitter. <laughs> we also do get a little bit of bisexual rep. At one point, they're all on the deck of the ship and they're playing Never Have I Ever. Mm-hmm. Felicity goes up and is like, never have I ever slept with a man. And most of the dudes like, well, neither have I. Except for Nutsford. <laughs> And he tells the, like, very sweet story of him being in school and being curious. Yeah. And very clearly having enjoyed himself in a, like, very wholesome way. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing, like, this is probably not a a thing that I want to do all the time, but I didn't have a bad time. And he's also not shit on for it. Like, I think there's gentle ribbing, but no one's mean to him about it. No one's mean to him afterwards either. Yeah. It's the sort of gentle ribbing that you get from, like, friends. Yeah, exactly. And everybody here feels like friends, which I like a lot. They do definitely downplay that quite a bit. Like, there's one point where where the Count is uh, standing up for Simple Simon. So there's a whole subplot of the film where Simon gets married, and it turns out the woman he's marrying specifically married him to get onto the ship so she could sleep with one of the other DJs. Gavin, who's kind of like the, the big hotshot uh, personality who's just come back to the UK. Yes. And... The Count decides to stand up for Simon and challenges him to a game of chicken, where they have to climb the radio tower on the ship. First one to back out loses. Neither of them end up backing out, and they crawl not all the way up, and then out onto the wings of the tower, and then jump off into the sea. <laughs> and during this, Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, Oh, fuck! There's also another bit where the ship is sinking, they're kind of losing everything, and Nutsford is lamenting that, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of in-real-life friends, people finding him, him annoying. Mm. And there's a whole speech like, Why? Look, this is I'm not popular. No, that's... Every group needs a fall guy. Angie, and yeah, sure, you've been it. But it's not... It's just been a joke. Everybody who actually loves this... Not and as proud as can be to count him in the number of their friends. Just raise their hands. 
See? Uh. Eventually it peters out. No one is like really in his corner anymore. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily feel like they were never in his corner in the first place. It more feels like, no, this is exactly the sort of way we fuck with Nutsford. <laughs> yeah. Nutsford also has one of my favorite lines in the movie. We have a character named Midnight Mark who is just an incredible sex icon. Like, there's at one point a scene of him just like surrounded by two or three dozen naked women. Yes. Um, it's very silly. The boat is sinking and Nutsford shouts, Try and fuck you out of this one, Mark! <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say that all the time now. It's, it's a very good line. Made even better by the fact that Nutsford is just freaking out about the whole thing because he lives on a boat and can't swim. <laughs> <laughs> Which is baffling to me. If you live near water, you should probably learn to swim just to be on the safe side. Mm-hmm. There's a very good bit where they try to teach him how to swim by just throwing him in the water and have a ongoing monologue about how, you know, I don't think this actually works for adults. It works for kids, not adults. Hmm, this is a mistake. <laughs> There's also a- another scene of just camaraderie on the ship where Carl comes back from acquiring a condom to find that Marianne has left his room and gone to sleep with Dave. And he's very brokenhearted about it. And a few of the other unlucky in love people on the boat try and cheer him up and they bring him like tea and biscuits. And they kind of just like sit there in silence and there's a very appropriate song playing in the background just doesn't touch anything and so the both of them are just like staring at it they start like eating the cookies and drinking the tea <laughs> and he, he kind of sort of like a final have one and then that's when he starts to like laugh a little bit yeah and it's incredibly heartwarming incredibly touching no dialogue there but you get all the emotions anyway like it's yeah. excellent acting mm-hmm that also brings up a thing I'll ding both these movies for. One of the people who's unlucky in love is the only black character on the boat, mm-hmm. uh, which both these movies have a young black man who plays music but doesn't really do anything else. Mm-hmm. And it's not great th- mm-hmm. in that way. But I will say that the boat that rocked that character, who's, I don't know his name. Howard. Howard. Uh, Howard has a moment where he's watching Simon have to keep a stiff upper lip despite having just been through all these marriage shenanigans and... Still, like, doing a really good job at it. And the emotions on his face are really impressive. Mm-hmm. And while that character doesn't really get to be a character, he at least gets to be a person. And I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I wish Howard got a little bit more to do. There's just so many big comedy personalities. And I think he gets a little lost in the shuffle. He has one very good bit where they're all talking about how they're not going to stop broadcasting even though they're being shut down by the government. And one person says, I've got... Nowhere else to go. I have somewhere else to go. But it's Peckham. (laughs) Which is really funny. Yeah. If we got more, like, episodic bits of this, I would say, like, definitely give him one. Like, let him have, like, a a day to shine. Yeah. Question, what does... Some of these people, I don't know what they do. Like, Carl, Howard, I'm not sure what their roles... Howard is a radio assistant. So he is the one outside of the broadcasting booth making sure that the signal is going out, everything like that. Mm. I have no idea what Carl's there for. Is he, is he their pet? I guess he would be an intern. Yeah, but we never see him like being like taught how to, you know, jockey the discs or yeah. adjust the sound quality or whatever. Yeah. Hook up the boom mic. Yeah, like I guess he probably does like some menial labor, but we never like really see that happening. We definitely need to like, again, if this was more of like a, a TV series, I want one where it's just, just like him and Felicity hang out while she teaches him how to cook and he does a bad job at it. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be fun. I think you... If you wanted to get those in, you have to like replace all the scenes of people just listening to music. We have this amazing, these wonderful, oh, the editing is so good on this. Um, yes. These 
like just very quick snapshots of just people all across the UK in different walks of life, different social arrangements, different income settings, all that jazz, listening to music in different places and, and ways. And I love it. It's so good. It makes the community of radio listeners feel real. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important thing in a narrative like this. Yeah. Yeah, we get to see how what they're doing is affecting people and the inherent good that it is, which is really fantastic. You mentioned the editing. There's also some really good cinematography, especially while the boat is sinking. Mm. As the boat begins to sink, they are incorporating a lot more Dutch angles into their filming. Mm -hmm. There's also really great sequence underwater where Carl is trying to save Bob because was on the deck of the ship and realized, wait, he's not here, rushes down to his bunk to try and get him to come along with him. Like, the ship is sinking, we have to leave now. Mm-hmm. It's a great sequence where Bob is adamant about saving his records, and Carl is just, like, trying to say no, but he can't talk to him, just, like, shakes his finger at him, which is very funny. Yeah. Honestly, I liked these underwater shots a lot more than I liked them in Titanic. Yeah, there's an, an inherent absurdity to, like, the underwater acting, But the camera feels more real in these shots than it did in Titanic. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is because the camera is swaying a little bit more as if it was being buffeted by the waters. Yeah, it it feels like the camera is within the water with them as opposed to being very static and the water is just moving around it. Mm -hmm. We haven't even talked at all about Carl's, like, Mamma Mia subplot that he's going through. Carl ends up on the ship because his mom sent him and Quentin, the owner-operator of the station is his godfather. Right after the bachelor party, Thick Kevin, in his his moment of clarity, <laughs> realizes it doesn't make a lot of sense for your mom to send you here to straighten you out. This is pro- probably the worst place she could have sent you. So it's probably not the reason why she sent you. My theory is that you're here because it's exactly the right time for a young man like you to get to know his dad. I therefore think that your dad is on this boat. And since he's definitely not me, I think he's probably Quentin. His mom then comes onto the ship for the holidays and Carl confronts her about it. like, no, Quentin's not your dad. And then one of the other DJs, uh, Bob, earlier had like- Yeah, your mom's coming on board. Yeah. Yeah, send her my best. Tell her, um, tell her Muddy Waters rocks. Also, for context, Quentin is every bit what you'd imagine a, like, charismatic older gentleman, Silver Fox kind of character to be. Yeah, he's, he's Bill Nye. Yeah. Whereas Bob is the closest thing you can be to a mole man on a boat. He's a deadhead. Yeah. He runs the, the radio from, like, 2 to 5 a.m. Yeah. There's a point in the film where, like, he shows up for a meal and no one knows who the fuck he is. <laughs> and he has to explain, like, oh, yeah, um, I, I do the really early show. I, I spend a lot of time in my room sleeping, doing drugs, listening to the music so that I know what to play. <laughs> I think he's been there for years and no one knew him. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Carl then delivers this message from Bob to his mother. And that's when it all comes about Bob's his dad. <laughs> Carl eventually confronts him about it, and he's very, like, not sure what the fuck to do about it. Mm-hmm. I honestly wish that that subplot got a little bit more resolved. Mm-hmm. Bob just kind of doesn't know what to do with it. They never touch on it again, and then Carl goes to save him. 
Mm-hmm. I also, I wish that Thick Kevin had his moment of clarity a little earlier because I think that if that was a running thread through the movie, I would have been a little bit more compelled by some of the interactions and the mystery of who Carl's father is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously not Quentin. That's that's too easy. But, yeah. So I was like, hmm, who else could it be on this boat? Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate there are a lot of moments of Carl having a variety of father figures. It's nice. There's not just one person who's a father figure. So yeah. It's kind of everyone is like, hey, we need to take care of this kid. Whereas the life of Quadic is this emotional journey of Zizu realizing how flawed he is as an individual and deciding to change course very late in his life. This is very much a coming of age story for Carl. Mm-hmm. Who is kind of a shitty kid, but in a not aggravating way. He's just young and immature. He is shitty in the way that you expect a 18-year-old to be shitty. Right. He's young and inexperienced and... Savage and get cast as Harry Potter a few years ago. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Everything about him screams made-for-TV Daniel Radcliffe. This also has a thing that I always love, which is like the community rising up to save the heroes mm-hmm. thing, which as is best done in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. That is the best version of this we will never see like again until Spider-Man 2, which is the even better version of this. <laughs> But I think that if I'd been in a different emotional place for this, I would probably have cried during the scene of all the boats showing up to save them. It's such a good payoff watching all of these fans react to everything happening on the radio, and then they react to them having to shut down because of the new laws. There's this really like somber moment on New Year's Eve as it's getting to switch over to the new year when the laws take effect, like, and everyone is kind of staring intently at their radios as... The count counts down to the end. It's the count, counting down and out for the count at last. Three, two, one. And the rest is silence. And then they decide. Only kidding, dudes! Let's rock! Uh, and just these cheers from everyone, except Kenneth Branagh's character, who like just immediately shuts off the radio and tells Twat to go the fuck home. <laughs> it's very good. I think those scenes are very important because they help set up this rescue moment at the end as being earned. Yeah, exactly. If we didn't have those, then all of the fans coming would have felt off. Even with the visit that we get from the fans on the boat, it wouldn't have been enough especially since like most of those are like very young women mm-hmm. whereas we have a huge swath of different types of people who come to save them like we have dock workers and fishermen and grandmas in a rowboat <laughs> mm-hmm. old salty sea dogs who uh, show up to kind of be the decoy boat for them while twat and his men are hunting them yeah i like this movie a lot it's a very feel-good movie yeah we talk about films that you can just like toss on at a party, and this is a fantastic one. Not only does it is its soundtrack fantastic, oh, a wonderful soundtrack, but because the plot overall isn't that important, you can just kind of jump in and out of it at will. The comedy is great, and yeah, it's just a feel good film. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we need right now. It's one of the reasons something like Palm Springs blew up the way it did. Uh, it looks like the most recent Bill and Ted film is going to be that way. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard a lot of similar things. Like, this is exactly the sort of nice, hopeful thing that I wanted right now. On the flip side, people are saying that New Mutants is the worst X-Men movie ever, and I'm so excited about this. <laughs> Two types of people. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, speaking of which, uh, I have a new, uh, my favorite, uh, the three genders bits. At one point, Bill Nye is addressing the crew of the, of the ship as a uh, uh, gentleman, ladies, and looks at Bob, strange bearded thing. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to get into uh, the Ship of Theseus Award. Yeah. So we have the Belafonte, the ship from Life Aquatic, and we have Radio Rock. I mean, very obviously, uh, Belafonte is going to win this one. Radio Rock goes to the bottom of the, of the yeah, seafloor. And... Surprisingly, it's like this old, dilapidated marine biology ship that gets attacked by pirates and like partially blown up still wins because Radio Rock sinks like the Titanic. <laughs> honestly, very explicit like the Titanic to the point of almost being a homage. Yeah. Yeah, there's also this great bit as the ship finally sinks. Um, the count who had been like broadcasting until he absolutely could not broadcast anymore because all of the equipment got flooded reaches the surface like a blue whale and everyone cheers. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's a bit that I think could have been kind of fun where the the radio tower goes underwater, but then as the boat breaks, it like comes back up. And I thought that like the signal was going to go back out one last time for that moment before mm-hmm. it goes all the way down, but mm-hmm. that didn't happen. So if these movies happen on the bracket, how do you think they would have done? I, I think that I know the the boat that rocked probably top four easily, depending on what it was up against. Especially if it would have wound up in the like bottom left quadrant of the bracket, it would have swept that. Yeah. Because let's see, the the semifinalist from there was the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. And this is so much better than the Poseidon Adventure. Miles better. I would definitely watch a, like, Poseidon Adventure remake that is mostly, like, old British dudes and it has punk rock music playing in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I definitely think somewhere in, like, the top four, I don't think I would have put this in front of Hunt for Red October or Life of Pi. Maybe I had a Jaws. Yeah, like, it would probably come down to, like, how I'm feeling that, that day. Mm-hmm. This is a great film. If you have not, I encourage you to seek it out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but I- I'm sure that it cannot be a hard movie to find. Yeah. So I think that does it for this episode. Next episode, we've got our last lifeboat. Mm-hmm. We still haven't decided on what we're doing for that one yet. Yeah, we're trying to come down to Hook or Captain Blood, as well as Mother Treasure Island. Mm-hmm. I think, honestly, let's just do Hook. I'm in the mood for some feel-good stuff. We can watch Captain Blood at any time. We don't need to. It's yeah. fine. So, yeah, our next episode will be Hook, as well as Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> Both of which, I believe, are streaming on Disney+. Plus. So if you got that, definitely look it up. Uh, additionally, we are still looking for guests for our upcoming bracket, Bride of Monster Bracket. So if you are a woman who has strong feelings about horror films... Or doesn't. Yeah, or doesn't. Please get in contact with us. Because it will feel incredibly bad to not have a single female guest for that bracket when we're talking about a bunch of female monsters. We could go the opposite direction and have, like, only cishet male guests, and it will be the Oscar Committee! For more of my comedy, follow us on Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, and wherever you got your pods. Uh, once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.